Sad news this week, TK Mattingly, Command Module Pilot on Apollo 16 and Commander of Space Shuttle Missions STS-4 and STS-51C has died at the age of 87. So today we talk to author and space historian Andy Chaikin to celebrate the life of Ken Mattingly. Do you have any Ken Mattingly stories? We'd love to hear them. Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. But right now, it's time for episode 167 of the Space and Things podcast. You are listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 167 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, how are you doing, Dave? You've had an interesting few weeks. Yes. <laughs> a good few weeks, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Life is uh, is certainly interesting right now, and um, lots of highs, lots of lows, but we're getting through. We're plodding on. We're plodding on. I totally understand that. I, I feel you. Okay. So... Before we start, this week we were supposed to be focused on a brand new movie called The Artist and the Astronaut. Due to the news about Ken, we pushed the release of that interview until episode 168. But we learned that there is a special screening of that movie happening in Houston, Texas on November 10th. So if you're in the area, please check that out. And Dave will put a link to that within the show notes. Yes, I will. So right now, let's crack on with this week's podcast. As Emily said in the intro... This week, we lost another of our heroes. On the 31st of October, Thomas Kenneth Mattingly, most commonly known as Ken Mattingly, died at the age of 87. In 1972, Mattingly was the command module pilot for Apollo 16, which puts him in a very small group of 24 people who flew to the moon in an even smaller group of six who have orbited the moon alone. And he's also one of the three who have performed a deep space spacewalk or an EVA. After the Apollo program, Ken stayed at NASA to fly the space shuttle. In 1982, he commanded STS-4, the fourth mission of the space shuttle, which lasted a week and was the final test flight mission for the shuttle. His final space flight was in 1985, commanding STS-51C, which was the first space shuttle flight with a dedicated mission for the DOD or Department of Defense. And the details are still classified to this day, so uh, we can't tell you what happened on that one. Uh, in total, Mattingly spent 21 days in space. Uh, this may seem like a small number by today's standards, but each of those missions represents various milestones in space flight. So 20, these were 21 important days for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Ken is perhaps best known because he was originally supposed to be the command module pilot on Apollo 13, but was pulled off the crew with three days until launch because he was exposed to the German measles and he hadn't previously had them. This was, of course, all dramatized magnificently in Ron Howard's movie Apollo 13, where Ken was played by Gary Sinise, who looks nothing like Ken, but still, Sinise does an incredible job. In the movie... Mattingly disappeared after the launch until someone had to come and find him, I think it was John Young, uh, to help out in mission control once the explosion had happened on on the spacecraft. In reality, he was in mission control for launch and very much involved with the mission all the way through, and he never did get the measles. Yep, never got him. 
In order to celebrate his life, we contacted author Andy Chaikin, who wrote A Man on the Moon, the greatest book about the Apollo program that we're aware of, who interviewed Mattingly while researching for the book. Uh, A Man on the Moon, which was famously read by Tom Hanks, who turned it into a 12-part HBO documentary called From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, We spoke to Andy about this way back on episode 78, so please do go and check that out if you're interested. But right now, we're going to celebrate the life of TK Mattingly. Never miss an episode. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a review. This is Space and Things. Thank you, Andy, for joining us on such short notice. Uh, We've just heard the news, and we appreciate that it's always difficult to talk in these circumstances. But thank you for finding some time to talk to us today. So... Let's pay tribute to T.K. Mattingly. Uh, What would you say are the achievements which you think he would want to be most remembered for? You know, T.K. was a test pilot, and I think he would want to be remembered not only for his moon flight, which was the thing I was most interested in when I interviewed him, but also his shuttle flights as a a commander of of a space shuttle, which he did more than once. And I think he was very proud of his accomplishments as a test pilot and as an astronaut. I'm sure he would also be proud of his work as a backup crewman, as a support crewman. I mean, I I think he felt like it was all so worthwhile and so important in the broad scheme of things, you know. I really got the sense from him that he just felt this is really, this is something that really matters. Absolutely. So Mattingly was really private. He was not somebody who gave uh, that many interviews, but I believe you spoke to him in depth when writing A Man on the Moon. So what was he like? And do you have any good stories from him that you that you got, you know, obviously him having Apollo 13 and just losing it by a, a couple days, a day or so, and Apollo 16 as well? I got to tell you, TK was the last astronaut that I interviewed for a man on the moon. I had talked to the other 22 who were still alive before that. And in 1992, I finally got his go ahead to come see him. Um, At that time, he was living in a condo in the Washington, D.C. area. He wanted me to show up in the evening. So I showed up in the evening and he had uh, takeout Chinese food. I remember (laughs) that I... That I had some with him and um, we just got to talking and I didn't walk out of there until 3.30 in the morning. And it was the one of the most wow. extraordinary evenings of my life. I had no idea how fascinating a person he was. I mean, I'd even been told by some of the other astronauts not to expect to get much out of him and they had no idea. When I asked him about Apollo 16, it was like he was reliving the flight in front of me. I mean, he told me about the experience of doing that deep space EVA, however many thousands of miles away from the moon and however many thousands of miles away from the earth, just in the middle of all this blackness. And and I just remember him kind of hunched over, you know, describing looking over the side of the spacecraft into that blackness. And he said, I'm sure I squeezed fingerprints in those handrails. I mean, that's how (laughs) scary it was to look into that abyss, you know, and the moon's a little itty bitty thing off in one direction and the earth is another thing off in another direction. And everywhere else was just this blackness. 
And I was just completely mesmerized. And the other thing that really struck him and, and amazed me to hear about it was what it felt like to orbit the moon solo while John Young and Charlie Duke were on the surface. And he just said, I don't know this for sure because I never got to walk on the moon, but he said, I cannot imagine that bouncing around on the surface of the moon is more exhilarating than orbiting the moon by yourself. <laughs> and he just talked about this magic feeling of being in this little spaceship, going over the far side of the moon in this, what he called, especially in Earthshine, because they had on their flight a pretty decent amount of Earthshine. And he said it was like a snow-covered landscape, but more so because of the brightness of the Earth. And he said it was just magical. And he said this, even the part that wasn't Earthshine, even the sunlit part, just he said this spectacular, unreal world. And it was just mind-boggling. He kept using that phrase, mind-boggling and so exhilarating. I couldn't have asked for a more amazing experience of a moon voyager sharing his experiences with me. It was just phenomenal. I think everybody knows on Apollo 13, he was supposed to be on the prime crew, but very shortly before he was to do that, he was taken off because he was exposed to measles. He didn't get it, but he was German exposed measles. to yeah. it. Yeah, German measles. And, you know, that was devastating. I mean, he said, I, what he said to me was, it just was inconceivable to me that they would leave me behind. And yet, that's what happened. And I had... The most, again, the most amazing exchange with him about that. And he said, look, if I'd been there, I would have been miserable. It got so cold in the cabin. And he said, I, I just do not do well in cold. I would have been really in, in tough shape. But he said, am I glad I wasn't there? No. He said, I should have been there. That was my mission. I was on that crew. That was supposed to be me. I should have been there with them. And he said, does that make sense? And he said, hell no, but that's the way I feel. <laughs> I've talked a little bit to Fredo, and he was actually kind of, and this doesn't reflect on Swigert, because, you know, he, he and Swigert got along fine, but he was devastated too, because he was like, you know, Ken had taken so much time to prepare for this. And then at the last second, you have to move from, thinking like you're on the prime crew to not being on it at all. So, and oh, it was yeah. devastating. We've got a question here from, from Leo, one of our patron subscribers, which is on this topic. And he asked whether Ken mentioned at all about whether being removed from that flight affected his relationship with Lovell and Hayes at all. I doubt it did, but, but did, did he mention that at all? No, he didn't. And I, and I doubt very much that it could have affected his relationship. I mean, um, no, and I never heard anything from either Jim or Fredo in that regard either. So I, I would say pretty definitively no. While we're talking about Apollo 13, obviously your interviews with, with Ken were before the movie came out. Did you ever have any exchanges with him afterwards about how he felt about that? I don't think so. You know, I talked to, to, to Fredo about it some because I was interested in his take on it. And I know... I talked to Jim less, but I had seen Jim's comments about the movie. 
I don't think I ever talked to TK about it. I've got one more movie slash TV related question here. So obviously in From the After the Moon, which was based on your book, A Man on the Moon, he loses his wedding ring on Apollo 16. Was that based on truth or was was that a, a Tom Hanks special? No, as far as I know, that was a true story. <laughs> that was a true story. And I think, wow, I think if I'm remembering right, I think Charlie Duke told me that story when I interviewed him. As far as I know, that was not made up. And the business about it bouncing off of his helmet is amazing. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite scenes in that episode. That's for sure. Yeah. Mine too. Mine too. Because I was actually thinking, I don't know why I was thinking about that randomly today about that scene with the wedding. So it's like his wedding ring. I was thinking about that. It just popped into my skull. Yeah. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, Ken got married shortly before Apollo 16. And in the process of taking his clothes off to go to the bathroom, he lost his wedding ring. And we'll leave that one there for now. Anyway, I'd like to talk a bit more about your book, A Man on the Moon. I reread it recently. Uh, I think I think it's one of those books is important to reread every, every couple of years because um, you'll always pick up on things and there's so much in there. And it strikes me that he's one of your major characters. He's someone that you perhaps go to more than more than others to talk about so much. And that caught me by so even though I've read it before, it caught me by surprise this time. I, I think I was paying attention more to who you were actually talking about. And it really caught me by surprise because he's not a name that often, despite the Apollo 13 movie fame, he's not a name that necessarily gets brought up a hell of a lot, is he? Right, exactly. I mean, I used to joke that, you know, I'd mention him and somebody would say, this never actually happened, but it was sort of like the spirit of what you're saying. Somebody might say to me, didn't he play third base for the Phillies, you know, because <laughs> there was a, actually a baseball player named Don Manningly, and I can't remember what team he played for, so yep. shame on me for that. But yeah, he was not a household name by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm really glad that you asked about him in the context of writing A Man on the Moon, because you're absolutely right in the sense that when it came to writing about, I mean, I don't know if you looked at like, okay, how many paragraphs did I devote to each guy? I don't know that Mattingly would be up in the in the top of the list, but what I did write about him was so impactful because of the stories he told me. And a perfect example of that was the deep space EVA, the spacewalk on the journey back from from the moon to the earth. And I had three missions to choose from, right? I wasn't going to write about them. You know, I wasn't going to repeat myself. That was one of my ground rules in writing the book. I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm going to make every mission stand out, how I tell it. And so I had to figure out, okay, am I going to do the spacewalk from Al Worden's point of view on 15? Well, he wrote some neat poems about it, but I really didn't get that much in storytelling mode from him about that. And then what about Ron Evans? You know, Ron was certainly great to talk to and very enthusiastic. When I talked to TK and it just blew me away, I really knew exactly what I had to do, which was his deep space EVA was the one that I was going to do from the astronaut's point of view. 
And so he just gave me such amazing stuff. And I just, I just put it on the page, basically. Mm. I mean, I don't think there's an awful lot of me in that section. And then when I got to Ron Evans, um, what was more poignant to me was having heard Stu Ruza say that he was in mission control. He had trained as Ron's backup on 17, and he really would have loved to have done that spacewalk. He would love to have been the prime crewman. And so I put myself in mission control, looking at the TV screen of Ron waving and saying, hi, mom, hi, Jamie, hi, Jan, <laughs> you know, um, and, and then bringing in Stu's thoughts and feelings. So it all worked out. It was kind of amazing to me. I think about that. Uh, I've thought about that many times over the years. I'm not trying to sound butt kissy, but it's, it's sublime. It's sublime the way you, you did that. But, um, next question is now we've, we've talked a lot about from the earth to the moon and the TV series, obviously that goes with it. But what a lot of people might not know who, um, is that, you know, he flew the shuttle twice and he flew one of the early test missions, STS-4. Those were quite risky. So did he ever talk to you about those? And you said he was he was proud of being a test pilot. You know, how did those missions challenge him as a test pilot? Because the shuttle obviously was one of the big test beds, I guess you could say. Yeah, you know, I I didn't talk to him about it, except we talked a little bit about the shuttle in general. And I know he really loved the shuttle. I mean, I know he thought it was a great flying machine. I I really did not ever, you know, uh, go there with him about what that experience was like or the challenges of it. Um, he did a really good JSC oral history where he might, he that some of that stuff might be in that JSC oral history. You know, I want to bring up something else that TK was involved in, which um, you may not know about. He was very deeply involved in the um, the X-33 program to try and create a single stage to orbit vehicle. Wow. Um, which is kind of like a, a, a dream of rocket designers. And it w this was in the, um, the 90s, I think. 80s or 90s. I'm losing my, uh, losing my grip on chronology, but it was a long time ago. And, and this was an approved program. They were going to build a, a, a subscale demonstrator for a single stage orbit vehicle. And it was going to have fuel tanks made out of composite materials. And he was really excited about it because, and this is typical of, of TK, he was passionate about spaceflight. If he could be involved in something that would, you know, advance the state of the art, then that was really cool to him. And he was very disappointed when that program was canceled. I know it was very frustrating to him. Uh, but that's kind of a lesser known uh, chapter in his career. Yeah, I, I didn't know about that at all, actually. I didn't know he was involved with that project. Yeah. So we, we've also had a question from Don Irwin. And he said, what might TK's peers say or have said about his life? Everybody knew how dedicated he was. He was kind of driven, actually. I think they thought of him as sort of a workaholic. I think they thought of him as a kind of a perfectionist. And he probably was both of those things. Absolutely superb in what he did. I think that that's 
probably what would come into their minds. I think, you know, again, in terms of what was inside him, I had more than one Apollo astronaut say, are you sure you're talking about Ken Manningly? When, when I would tell them about what I, what I got from him in my interview, you know, and the, just the, the level of depth and, and introspection and just the level of thoughtfulness in everything he said. I really don't think that most of them had an, any, any clue that that was inside him. Um, he was private. He was introverted. He was quiet. But there was a lot in there. And a great sense of humor. And he laughed easily. That was one of the really fun things about being with him was that he would just, he'd tell a story and then he'd just, you know, let out this laugh. He just took delight in telling the stories and, and, and you know, and in self-deprecating humor also. I remember him talking about being in the water tank to train for that deep space EVA. And he said, you know, you're, you're in this suit. They put the weights on you so you're neutrally buoyant, but you're not weightless. And he said, I just remember I was in the water tank and I was upside down. And of course, there's still gravity and I'm hanging against the suit. And he said, I, I felt like King Kong, you know, <laughs> and he just laughed. It was just great. I feel very blessed to have known him on that level and his passion in addition to his humor, his thoughtfulness, his introspection, his keen intellect, very perceptive and very, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but he was just a, a really fascinating, delightful person. What do you think is the reason why he opened up to you and yet his peers may not have ever seen that side of him? Was it side of him that he didn't want to show to his peers, perhaps? Is there an element that... Uh, of well, that side of it, or or was he just not in those social circles? I I think that it's a gen. I think it was a general kind of truth among the astronauts of that generation that you just didn't talk about that stuff with each other. I mean, I remember talking to Walt Cunningham and saying, "Did you ever talk to Bill Anders when he came back from Apollo Eight and ask him what it was like? You know, because Walt had been in Earth orbit." But Bill had gone in orbit of the moon and Walt was like, nah, because, you know, what is he going to tell me? I mean, I didn't have that experience. He did, but it wasn't on their minds, not in any kind of front of the mind kind of way. I mean, they may have wondered at some level what one guy or another experienced and they could speculate on what it was like, but I don't think they ever talked to each other on that level. But here I come along and I'm like bouncing off the walls. I'm so enthusiastic and I've studied every millimeter of the flight and I've read every page of transcript and watched every second of video. And I think that kind of helped open these guys up and including Mattingly. I think once you're with somebody who's had an experience like this, that's so powerful and so precious and you come in having done your homework to that degree and with that kind of enthusiasm it does have that effect and it certainly did with him it was really um amazing there were several interviews out of the whole group that i still am amazed by them when i think about them there were moments in in almost every one of the interviews that were amazing but but with 
But TK, it was just the whole thing was amazing. It was just mm. great. Our last question. So while we have you here, we saw yesterday that you have some good news about a course that you've written called Principles of Success in Spaceflight, which is being offered by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics coming up in February 2024. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I'm really excited about it. It's a course that I started teaching at NASA in 2016. And uh, I've given it at every NASA center. In fact, this year and next, I'm doing another uh, tour of all the NASA centers. I really feel I should have a, a tour shirt, but I just <laughs> haven't gotten that together, you know? But yeah, Principles of Success in Spaceflight, it, it focuses on the human behavior piece of uh, spaceflight projects. And really, it's about what, what is the mindset that you as an engineer or a project manager or anybody involved in a spaceflight project, what's the mindset that you have to bring to that incredibly demanding work to achieve success and avoid failure? And what I've done is I've gone back to Apollo and looked at it through that lens and put together a framework to talk about the behaviors that got us to the moon. By the same token, what were the behaviors that led to the Apollo fire and got them off track. And then after the fire, how did they get back on track and get to the successful Apollo 11 landing and all the missions that followed? It's, an, it's a really compelling part of the story that I never thought I would be involved in, but I was asked to do this work by NASA back in 2011. And so this has been my career for the last many years. And I'm really psyched to have a chance to give the course to anybody who wants to go to AIAA.org and sign up and just look for principles of success in spaceflight. It's a about a seven and a half hour class that's being split up into two sessions. So I hope, nice. I hope, hope to see some of, uh, some of your viewers. Yeah, I'm, I should do it too. I, I'm a member, or I, I think, yeah, I'm a member of the AIAA, so I I should uh, do it as well. So that sounds like that sounds like a lot of fun and right up my alley. Yeah, I should do it as well. Right. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. This really has been amazing. Well, I really appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about one of my all-time favorite Apollo astronauts. When I heard about this, I thought, God, I really want people to know how great he was. Well, thank you for sharing Absolutely. your stories. Absolutely. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you. Past to present, Sputnik to Starship. This is Space and Things. So once again, we call up Andy Chaikin. It's either him or Francis when someone dies. When isn't somebody it? I know dies, that sounds I know. a little bit it disrespectful. But sad, but those two just know most about these people, which makes sense to, to to contact them. Anyway, Andy has done a great job there in in painting a picture of Ken and what it was like to interview him for a man on the moon. And I just really enjoyed that that interview and the way he spoke. I loved the fact that there was almost a hidden side of Ken that he even hid from his hid from his peers. Uh, I think that's really fascinating. I, w one interesting observation from me about Mattingly passing is we haven't necessarily seen as much outpouring for Ken as perhaps there was online when uh, McDivitt died. Yeah. Earlier. Was that earlier this year? That was actually about a year ago. 
about it doesn't seem that long ago but it, it was, really doesn't r- yeah it was roughly about a year ago i think it was october last year so yeah it was about a year ago the reason i bring that up is just because i find it interesting obviously Matley was incredibly private um we've, we've spoke about that and he didn't do many public appearances uh or autograph shows that wasn't really his thing so i think that the main difference there obviously uh, mcdivitt commanded a mission as well, Apollo mission and a Gemini mission as well. I think the main difference is that not many people have stories about Ken. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people had stories about McDivitt meeting him at shows and so on and so forth. So a lot of people had a personal, oh, he was really nice to my son, so on and so forth. But there have been a few that have been really wonderful to see. So when, when I've been hunting them down and actually looking for these things, when they pop up about Ken, all of them speak so fondly. So that why there aren't as many in number, when people had their experiences with Ken Matterly, it seems that it was a really special experience. Um, And and I think that is also worth pointing out that, that yes, he was private, but when he gave you those moments, they were really good moments. Yeah. I love Shaken's, Shaken's, Andy's, I love Andy's, uh, I, I still refer to him very formally, but I love Andy's characterization of Mattingly in uh, the book, A Man on the Moon. I, I like how he kind of contrasts him with Swigert, who was like this social animal, you know, had parties at his house all the time, you know, and, and Mattingly was kind of a nerd. You know, I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that he was a bachelor at that time. He did, I believe he did eventually marry, but um, he was more sort of interested in tinkering around with stuff and, you know, figuring stuff out. You know, he wasn't really a social, as much of a social party animal as somebody like Swiger. I kind of loved how they contrasted, compared and contrasted them to sort of give you an, a feeling of what they were like. But the stuff he got from Mattingly was so meaningful and so different from what anybody expected from Mattingly. And I think that's very special. I think it, it, it proves, to me, it, it's one of those things, it, it really proves how important space history is it really does i I think some people have this attitude you know space history is not that big of a deal it's not really covered in school in schools in the united states um i don't know about curriculum anywhere else um to me it tells me also that books are still very important because to me mattingly is just as important as the people who discovered the west you know in the united states in the 1800s you know the people who were on covered wagons and things like that yeah they had to deal with a lot of adversity. It was not fun probably traveling cross country on those things for days with no toilet or, you know, <laughs> no running water, no electricity, nothing like that. There were no gas stations back then. You couldn't just go into a Wawa and wash up. We tend to forget about how tough that was. And I think people like Mattingly, you know, they're to me, they're in the same category because they pioneered space flight and early space flight, which Apollo definitely falls in, in my opinion, the Apollo lunar missions, even the later Apollo lunar missions, they were basically just pioneering everything. This was stuff that had never been done ever before. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why there have only been a few people thus far who've been to the moon. If it hadn't been for somebody like Andy, who got good stories from him and captured him and who he, his essence, we wouldn't know about it at all and to me it just proves how important space history is and how important chroniclers of space history are (laughs) emily gets on her soapbox here i think there's an attitude i don't know what it's like in the uk but in the united states that you know the humanities aren't really important 
They absolutely are. History is very important. History to me, at its at its most fun is kind of like gossip from the past. But seriously, yeah. but it's also, you know, capturing the essence of people who pioneered things that, you know, nobody hadn't had done before. I think it speaks to the importance of that, that someone like Andy got to get that down for all posterity. So everybody can say, okay, this is what TK Mattingly was like. And this was his personality and this is what he did. I think that's just awesome. And it speaks to the importance, the supreme importance, I think, of those kinds of things. Yeah. So I got two thoughts on that. Number one is I went to see a play at the weekend with Sir Ian McKellen. Oh, you may wow. know him as a Gandalf or yeah, Magneto. I was say Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, so he it was a two man show and in in a small theatre in the West End, and it was wonderful. And the, the, the opening bit, the two characters introduced themselves, and one of them was a history teacher. So that's where this links in. And uh, the, the character was explaining that his favourite part about history are letters, because letters give you exactly, uh, particularly if they're written at the time something was happening, they yeah. give you that that real sense of what that was like for that person and there's an urgency and and more so than emails or, or other things like that to a, a pen on the page where you can smell the emotion and and you can see the pressure of the pen on on the on the page and so on and so forth and although we don't have necessarily have Ken's letters I think for me personally it, it got me thinking about what I love about history and I and I love hearing interviews with people particularly at the time but we don't necessarily have a lot of that unfortunately when the oral histories happened, NASA decided to do their oral histories, it was 30 years after uh, yeah. that that oral history program started. And, and maybe that because that was when the internet was there and then they start suddenly realise actually we've got a place to put all of this stuff. And yeah. we talked about it with Andy in regards to the, the space shuttle missions, which obviously Andy didn't interview um, Ken about the space shuttle. So we didn't really go into that within that interview. But um, Ken commanded two space shuttle missions one of the first four which were the test flights yeah where there was just two of them you know and they were where they actually had uh, ejection seats in in those yeah. in columbia in those days and not that they would have done much use but the oral histories that are available on, on the nasa website and the, the, there's two with ken which are really really wonderful and they are really wonderful but they're not necessarily as engaging as a book like what andy has written yeah, about the Apollo program because sometimes when you have an interview, especially when it's not at the time and you don't necessarily have the audio, you just have the trans the transcript. It's hard to really feel what's coming off the page um, unless you've got someone doing that work, being the curator of the interview, which is what a good historian the author will do. They'll take an interview which they've transcribed and bring it to life for you, the reader, which is what Andy does really well. And it's not to say that it's not worth reading the oral histories of Ken Matherly. It yeah. really is. They're very long and they're quite attention to detail as you would expect from a test pilot. Yeah, as you expect from Mattingly, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and particularly if you want to learn more about his shuttle missions as much as he can tell, because obviously the second one, was we mentioned earlier, yeah. was classified. Um, if you want to find out more about those and, and how he felt about those, and there's some really good descriptions about how he felt the differences were like between Apollo and shuttle, particularly with the extremes of launch and landing, how he felt the shuttle was almost a breeze. It didn't, you didn't really feel much on the shuttle compared to what you felt 
on the Saturn V. And what makes that perspective even more interesting is he's only one of two people that flew on both the Saturn V and the Space Shuttle. We have just two people who have done that. People pour over YouTube videos which compare one rocket to the other. And you've got someone who flew on both and we don't hear enough about that person's perspective of what it was like being on both. And I think that's fascinating. I I would love to write about that because I think that's really... Like like you said, there's only two people who knew what that was like. And plus, those were very different launch vehicles. I think it's interesting to explore sort of the dichotomy. I guess the the time difference as well, because, you know, there was sort of a different approach to spaceflight by the time the shuttle actually came out. It, it just opens a lot of a lot of discussion, I think. That transitional period for me is just gold. It's very interesting as we know, I've written a lot about space in the 70s and what people envisioned the shuttle as versus what it actually became. I'm glad that oral history is there. And I'm also sad he's gone as well because this was one of the only two people who could tell us what that was like. And now he's gone. Absolutely. One of our listeners pointed out in the week, once we heard the news about Matt and Lee, that it became rather poignant because in last week's interview with Tom Jones, he mentioned the fact that Matheny wasn't given many interviews when he was writing the book and was looking for someone to talk about STS-4 and uh, Hank Hartsfield's no longer with us. So he had to use those oral histories himself yep. in order to create that book that we talked about last week, Space Shuttle Stories. Uh, again, we, we're talking about history and, and, and people making sure that they've documented stuff and then we've got documents of this stuff and we, we talk about this so often when we talk about it's such a shame that someone else has passed. It seems to be our recurring theme. We've got to make the most of the, those who are alive and able to talk to us and get these stories down. And and thankfully, NASA's done a fairly good job of it themselves yeah. with these oral histories. Oh, yeah. The ones Absolutely. that exist. But, but also people like Andy Chaikin going out and in interviewing these people back in the day and making these books, which are amazing. And and perhaps there are plenty of interview full interviews we've never heard because someone's gone, well, I only need a section of this for a book or this podcast or that, the other. And there's archives of stuff that we haven't heard or let, yet learned from that may have little nuggets. So hopefully people that have these fuller interviews with astronauts of that era may be able to just publish them. Now their research is years gone is an audio file or a transcription i think that's important but anyway i've massively digressed but i think you're right that the importance of history is really evident within this episode because without historians without space historians these stories of these as you said pioneers and that's a crucial thing is going to get lost and perhaps they shouldn't do because as i've mentioned many times before when people look back at this century of the last 200 years one of the big th- in thousands of years to come one of the big things they're going to talk about is the first time that humans left planet earth and within the first 10 years of that people walked went to the moon and Matterly was one of those people and one of those voices that we'll want people will necessarily be looking for to find out what that was like and what it felt like and, and what the technology was like and uh, and the, the hurdles they had to overcome and therefore having interviews like we've just had with Andy where we hear a little bit about 
what these people were like. Only add to that. And hopefully yeah. people can learn more about these people and, and get these people under their skin uh, and and feel what it was like to be on the Apollo program and be on the space shuttle and, and Gemini and Mercury in those early days. Oh, yeah. And, and I think I like that you brought up the Tom Jones book as well, because I think now that we're, God, 12 years, unbelievable, 12 years removed from the shuttle, that program ended 12 years ago. I think now a lot of the histories about the shuttle are starting to sort of leak out. Uh, there have been a few really good books about shuttle, along with Tom Jones's book as well, that have come out in the last few years. And I think people are just starting to sort of talk about the program as an overview, as a whole. And not just Challenger. Yeah, not just one mission or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're starting to look at the entire program. And I think uh, Mattingly was also very much a part of that. And his sort of um, take on early shuttle, you know, as a test pilot is also really important. You and I mentioned the the approach and landing tests all the time, and Fred uh, Fred Hayes, another Apollo thirteen astronaut, uh, his his role in that, and we talk about how important that was and how important it is to know about that. Well, if Fred Hayes was important in the shuttle, who didn't fly in space on the shuttle, then Ken Mattingly, who was around throughout all of that, involved in those tests, who was involved in the early test flights of the space shuttle, his voice has got to be heard on that as well. So, oh yeah, um, as, as yeah, that Tom Jones book and and in that. Andy Shakin interviews uh, about the Apollo program. All those, all those resources we have about Ken Mattingly and, and his role in it just become gold, don't they? They become really important. Absolutely. Yep. So, as always, the full interview will be available on our Patreon page for those who wish to watch it. Uh, and that's patreon.com forward slash space and things. And if you want links to Andy Chakin's work, they will be in our show notes on space and things podcast.com or click the link in the description of this podcast episode in your podcast provider. I'll also put the links to the NASA oral history transcripts that were performed with Ken, as we just talked about extensively. I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. There's so much information in them. And bearing in mind, as far as I'm aware, there's not a biography on Ken Mattingly. They become incredibly important documents. Dave will put a link to that in the show notes. So, Emily, what has caught your eye in the world of spaceflight in the last week? A couple things. Um, The first thing is uh, actually an event. Next week at Kennedy Space Center, there is going to be a screening of Searching for Skylab with a panel. We had uh, the director, Dwight Stephen Bonecki, on our show a few episodes ago. I forgot the exact number, but he was on our show. I I plan on being there. And uh, the 50th anniversary of the launch of Skylab 4, SL4, uh, will be celebrated on Thursday, November 16th at 3 p.m. That's Eastern Time and the IMAX Theater. And also, uh, there will be a uh, panel consisting of uh, Jack Lausma and Rusty Schweikert. And we have also interviewed both those astronauts on our show uh, in the past as well. I think Rusty was on 132, and Jack was just a few episodes ago. So, um, seating is on a first-come, first-served basis. So, that's an event that is happening next week at Kennedy Space Center. I'm guessing... uh, you probably need an admission ticket to get into Kennedy Space Center. And also, I, I have a little follow-up that I thought was really cool. Last week, I, I talked about how Voyager 1 is was sending basically reel-to-reel, not sending the actual tape, but sending the contents of some reel-to-reel tape back to Earth. About seven hours of reel-to-reel tape. Uh, I don't think anybody knew that that still worked on 
that spacecraft yeah. uh, at all, but um, I certainly did not know that. Um, if you know what real-to-real tape is, you may want to start taking uh, some uh, arthritis medicine at this point because you're probably a little bit old. But anyway, somebody in Space Hipsters, uh, I, I'm probably not saying his name right. Not, uh, if he's listening, I apologize, but Craig, C-O-C-C-A, CASA. He actually sent a really cool comment sort of explaining how we would get that back on Earth. Because part of me was like, how are we going to get that content back here? Because I'm sure there's a lot of issues with, you know, there's probably a lot of things with the Deep Space Network that would cause it to, you know, be difficult for it to come back. Well, this is what he said, and I'm reading this verbatim. He wrote this in Space Hipster. So I thought this was really cool. And if anybody has any questions about that, like I did, this can clear a lot of things up. So he said, all kidding aside, receiving tape playback from Voyager 1 creates major engineering challenges at 162.2 AU from Earth. Uh, unlike solid state memory, where transition, transmission rate can be arbitrarily set to lower rates as the distance to Earth increases, the reel-to-reel tape recorder on Voyager 1 dumps data back to the transmitter at whatever speed the tape is traversing the playback head. Wow. The slowest speed that the motors turn on the Voyager tape recorder yields a data rate of 1.4 kilobytes per second, I think, KBPS. This is 8.75 times the 160 BPS data rate normally used for Voyager 1 downlink, which can be received reliably by a single 70-meter 70M dish. The only way to receive the tape playback with an efficient SNR is to array multiple antennas together. So you're going to put, basically in his words, you're going to put several deep space, you're going to put a bunch of dishes together. And he actually attached a paper about how that works, which is cool. But yeah, basically you would have to tie a bunch of dishes together to get that playback back. Because I was wondering how they're going to get, I'm like, how are they getting that back? There's got to be a lot of weird stuff I, I i'm sure the the way the play the tape plays back isn't playing the same way as like an antenna would perceive it you know i was thinking mm-hmm. that so i thought that was really fascinating for those of you who have an interest in that kind of stuff and for those of you who have questions about last week's story which i did so dave what has caught your eye in space flight over this past week um i haven't really been looking to be honest i did love the uh Virgin Galactic launch. Yes. Watch that. That was amazing. Uh, fantastic. It was a success. And the videos looked fantastic, as always, from them. So, yeah, I haven't really, I'll be honest, I haven't really been following, I'm keeping up to date as well as I normally do. How dare you have a life outside? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm no, kidding, no, I'm no absolutely. I'm How dare I? You're I'm right. Joking. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. So the, I'm joking. I, got, I don't want people to hear this be like, man, Emily's evil. That's awful. No, 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 I totally get it. You should know she is. Anyway, um, I am evil. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Com- all the yeah, I'm completely horrible. I'm being held my to ransom listening. in my studio, which is why I can't actually uh, <laughs> yeah, look at any articles. Being, <laughs> Steve's looking at me, and he's yeah. Steve's looking at me from my husband's looking at me from the other room. Like, yes, this is true. This is accurate. She's horrible. So yeah, I am evil. But, no, um, not, not no, at it, all. So I, so I have a list of nine <laughs> articles which I scanned through earlier, and I didn't read any of them, but I looked at the headlines, and the headlines caught my eye. So I will put those articles 
in the show notes. China have launched some new astronauts, so that's that's pretty cool, and uh, brought some people back safely. But I think there was a problem with a with a. There was a parachute. hole in the parachute. Yeah. yeah, apparently there was a hole or a rip or something like that. But Crazy. in all fairness, they came back alive and they came back safe. So the the system must have worked well enough that they came back okay. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to make excuses for that, but I think I'm hoping that next time, next time that <laughs> absolutely. So, so the one article I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the most. I think that let's change it to that, shall we? What am I looking forward to discovering the most? Yeah, that's fine. The headline is Meet Tenacity. Sierra Space unveils first Dream Chaser space plane. Tenacity being the name of the That's space plane. That's cool. Um, it's like basically it's unveiled the, the space, this new space plane, which looks amazing. It's kind, of, it's kind of like the space shuttle, but futuristic. A futuristic version of the space shuttle. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about that and finding more about that. And perhaps uh, we need to get someone on if we can. I mean, it might be difficult, but if we can get someone on from Sierra space to talk about it would be amazing hey if they're listening please reach out we would love to talk to you and i i love the dream chaser i think it looks so cool and sleek and i hope to see this thing fly. absolutely i mean i seem to recall there being um artist depictions of what the future of space flight would look like in my school textbooks or space books i got from the library when i was a kid and one of them looked just like what this space yep. plane looks like so I'm excited about that and, and finding out more that's where we're at until next week <laughs> yep to find out what guests are coming up in the future and submit your questions head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things okay so thank you for joining us this week i know that these episodes can feel quite depressing when we're paying tribute to our heroes who have recently passed on as we mentioned, these people are too important to not celebrate or yes. find out stories about. So thank you for listening. And to those who continue to share our podcast with your space life loving friends, we really do thank you. Yes, we do. Uh, thank you for listening. And we, we appreciate the support. So we'll be back next week. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. You've been listening to the Space and Things podcast.